if anything, I see right now, that this is the time where we need to open it over this regicide. You know, I, I'd like to get into a room and maybe publicly, you know, talk about like, why is this different? Why are the lives of what he considers the people of value different than drug users' lives, you know? I mean, that's that's the real question. I mean, why, why not do the same for, for drug users uh, so they can safely use? You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Right now, we are all supposed to be staying at home. But what if you have no home to go to? For hundreds of thousands of Americans, that is the case. They can't shelter in place because they have no shelter. The COVID-19 crisis has exposed many weak spots in our culture and the need for radical change. It has revealed which workers are really essential, and it's not the executives keeping this late-stage capitalist economy afloat, and that we need to pay these workers a living wage. It has revealed that yes, healthcare is a human right, and that contributing to public health is, shockingly, essential to keeping everyone healthy. And perhaps most relevant to this show, the COVID-19 crisis has demonstrated the utmost importance of supervised consumption sites or places where people can use drugs under medical supervision. We have numerous episodes on this topic in the past, so if you want to check out our archives, there's episode 31, episode 26, or way back on episode number four for more information. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. Our episode today focuses mainly on Pennsylvania, which in many ways has been ground zero for the opioid crisis and the debate over opening a supervised consumption site. With me, I have co-host Zachary Siegel from Chicago and Christopher Marath in Philly. Say hi, guys. What's up? Hey, you. And we have two guests today on the show, Sterling Johnson, a housing lawyer who is well-known among Philly harm reductionists. He's worked with the Soul Collective, whose primary goal was to open a supervised consumption facility, even before Larry Krasner said he would not prosecute. And this is in the wake of the closure of El Campamento, a long-used injection spot hidden behind privately-owned rail tracks that the Inquirer called a, quote, heroin hellscape. The closure was an absolute clusterfuck that landed hundreds of people living in tents under four of Kensington's most highly trafficked thoroughfares. Sterling was a fixture at Soul Events and went on to serve on the advisory board of Safehouse. We also have Matthew Shepik, an organizer with the Philadelphia Tenants Union, a harm reductionist and addiction outreach specialist that works with homeless drug users in the Kensington area of Philadelphia. I want to ask you both what differences you are seeing since this coronavirus crisis happened. And let's start with you, Sterling, what you're seeing. You mentioned that not long ago after the stay-at-home order was issued that several homeless encampments were cleared and broken up. Yeah, Troy, the amount of really locally like Center City and also in Kensington, those places where, that people usually drop into, people can no longer go to. So where do people go? Where are they supposed to move on to? Places where people went to the bathroom to use the water, inject inside, maybe in a bathroom, um, behind a building. Uh, I mean, the, the, the issues are really dire. Uh, the amount of food that people used to get from a lot of the restaurants really has dried up. So I think we're talking like resource at a, the most basic level, like water and food, this is where people are, are feeling really, really, really tight. Matt, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, the difference I, I've seen personally on the streets is, so what we've seen so far in the data is that there's been fewer people turning into the CRCs for addiction and fewer overdoses showing up in the ED. But simultaneously speaking to people in the streets, I'm hearing that 
you know, they're seeing an uptick in overdoses. So we're not really sure if, if overdoses are currently going up or down um, because the data is really limited in the way that it's collected. Um, my hope is that, you know, people just aren't dying in places that we can't see or find them right now. On top of that, to echo what Sterling said, yeah, there's definitely a scarcity of resources. A lot of the uh, groups that typically help out in the neighborhood, um, providing food, water, and other essentials to homeless individuals in the area have kind of stepped back. Right now, the only, the only organizations I, I know of that are still regularly providing food and other services is Prevention Point, but they're, they're relatively overwhelmed there's still a lot of people out there on the streets um, with nowhere to go. You go anywhere else in the city, it's a ghost town. But if you go up to Kensington, there's still people all over the streets, not social distancing. And these people are vulnerable, uh, especially because of the, you know, the immunocompromised status that drug use can lead to um, and other, you know, contributing factors being on the streets, you know, being exposed to the elements day in, day out. Um, so we, we've definitely seen a very little aid to replace what was there before. Uh, I just uh, quickly jump in and I get daily reports that, I don't know, you may get them too mad from police fire, EMTs and prevention point, which is not every overdose, obviously, but, um, overdoses are like, at least according to that data, that's about the only good thing about this whole thing. And they'll, they'll have days without a single fatal um, when we were having three to four a day in 2017. And as I wrote recently in Filter, I think there's a, there's a, a perception that, that supply lines are gonna get cut. And people are, you know, I think on the supply side in Philadelphia maybe holding on to stuff. It's not really the case, um, according to the sources I spoke to down there that, said it's still flowing, you know, because it's coming through in the commercial shipments, which haven't been, you know, they didn't shut that yet. So, um, I don't know. In those three main fat variables, like police, fire, and EMT, and prevention point, there are days we don't have a single fatal overdose. Yeah, I mean, to me, it just seems like we're in a huge atmosphere of uncertainty. Like, we w- probably won't know for a while whether you know overdoses are are going up or going down in this you know how long has it been six weeks or so and then like I don't know I it's just it's so hard to get a, a, a solid grasp on everything with the limited data collection that we have and so I'm just like sort of uh like holding on to like images and shit that I see and to me, like I, one of the, like the the grimmest slash most absurd things I saw on homelessness was was out of Las Vegas, where they set up like a a grid for people to sleep in like a a square in a parking lot, and it was like all six feet apart, and there's just like a I don't know how big the grid was and how many people were in there, but there's like hundred thousand plus uh hotel rooms in las vegas that are just straight up empty and yet people are like still sleeping outside just like the whole i don't know like the whole pandemic is is really showing like you know who matters and it's like corporations it's their bottom line it's definitely not people like this is 
more of the same, but it's just like so in our face now that we can't, I mean, we've all been paying attention to this stuff for years, but it's like, I don't know if anything will change after this. Like the, the images are just so galling, but yeah, grim stuff all around. I did just want to follow up really quickly. I, I mean, I, I understand that some of the data that's being uh, transferred does show that there has not been as many overdoses, but it does worry me when uh, I do hear high-level health officials pretend as if we don't have some sort of addiction or overdose crisis still. Uh, I was in a meeting where I, I heard a high-level official just make that statement, and, and I, I don't think that that's the case. I think that people still need support. Um, and plus, that's not the only thing affecting, I mean, you know, you're going to see a jump in sleep cut because people are just going to be falling asleep and falling in the train tracks, and, you know, so there's other harms that yeah and just to echo what was said about you know hotel rooms um before philadelphia did actually rent out rooms at the holiday inn which i believe were initially supposed to house the homeless but um the only people i know that are being housed right right now are um people with covid who came from inpatient treatment centers i know kirkbride recently had an outbreak of covid19 Oh, that's so funny. I was trying to get somebody in there today. <laughs> I guess that's not a good thing. Yeah, um, don't don't send people to Kirkbride right now. Okay. <laughs> so so a treatment facility that had an outbreak of COVID and to get people out and get them housed, they got them into a hotel. Is that the situation? Yes, that is the situation. I think all of this kind of speaks to the importance of supervised consumption because, you know, people are being told to shelter in place, but a lot of people live alone. So there's going to be people using alone more and people who don't have a place to shelter, like we should be able to bring them in on the off the streets and like allow them to use safely under medical supervision. This is an argument we repeat over and over on this program. Um, but can we talk about how a couple months ago, there was like some back and forth. Will they, won't they open one of these facilities? Uh, but how has COVID-19 like delayed that opening even more? Yeah. So, I mean, leading up to this in mid-February, there was an announcement from the judge that was an official end to the case um, that would allow, you know, for us to say that we are not breaking the law if we open a safe, safe consumption site in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. And there was real backlash from the community around that after there was an announcement to open in South, South Philadelphia. There was a two-pronged part of that. Uh, there was uh, the kind of political mobilization of a lot of right-wing people. And then there was a political component where a bill was open to, to block the opening as well. So uh, an attempt to change the zoning components as well as uh, this kind of rabble-rousing there. And right now we're in talks to think about what that bill looks like. Uh, there are a lot of people in the city that want there to be community engagement, but understand the need for the uh, sacred on the site to be open somewhere. So that means that there may not be consensus uh, about everybody about the need for it, but uh, there has to be some sort of community engagement that addresses some of those concerns, but uh, it has to open somewhere. And the only place that could open as of April, 2020, is in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Uh, so Philadelphia and, and uh, Safe House and the people here uh, have been committed to, to making that happen. Uh, I mean, we formed a, a new network called the Philadelphia Overdose Prevention Network 
um, to get all of the harm reduction organizations in Philadelphia on the same page. So, um, and we have a we have a, a job announcement out to hire a community organizer to think really deeply about talking to people and trying to meet leave them where you at where they're at and to put a lot of those harm reduction practices into community engagement. So. Um, we're going to try this again. I mean, the fact of the matter is that there's still an overdose crisis. There has not been turned around. We are one of, of you know, hundreds of overdose rented sites that need to be opened in, around the country. So we need to do it right. We need to do it in a, in a very intentional way. And I mean, that's what we're committed to. So is there going to be sort of like a canvassing or like door knocking campaign to like knock on neighbors' doors and be like, hey, like, you know, what would you think if this opened, you know, a couple blocks from you? Like, is, is that sort of the, the strategy going forward? My takeaway from this is that community buy-in is bullshit. Like, I don't get to decide whether Arby's opens on Snyder Avenue. You know what I mean? Like, now that it's a political issue, that they, they've lost the upper hand. They, I, don't, I don't see that working. But, I'm, you know, obviously I'm, I'm interested to hear your position on that. Yeah, uh, the, the fact of the matter is, is that there are stakeholders in every community that have the ability to mobilize people. Uh, so at least talking to those individuals uh, and addressing their concerns in a like meaningful way is, it just happens to be that this is a controversial idea. And though I don't find it controversial, I think that we're going to have to meet the community where it's at in terms of having a lot of humility about it uh, while simultaneously going forward, even if there isn't universal consensus about the benefits of it. Um, um, you know, I am not a part of Safe House. I'm a person that's a part of a network. I'm a person with one opinion. Uh, but, you know, it's just, um, I, I think this COVID crisis has really, really put that into focus about the need to protect livelihoods at any cost. Um, there weren't any discussions about where to put any COVID crisis testing sites around the city. You know, there wasn't a need to ch change any any zoning, and I, th I think that, you know, talking to to politicians, I mean, making those comparisons would be would be, would be a really, really important thing. And I mean, and you know, it was brought up by one smart reporter to say uh, to one of the council people, uh, well, it seems very very sensible that you would open this hotel for people that are experiencing the COVID crisis to allow them to self self isolate. Um, why, why not do the same for, for drug users that, so they can safely use? And he said, this is different. Um, you know, I, I'd like to get into a room and maybe publicly, you know, talk about like, why is this different? Why are the lives of, what he considers the people of value different than drug users' lives? You know, I mean, that's, that's the real question. I mean, if anything, I see right now, this is the time where we need to open an overdose prevention site. Overdose prevention sites, uh, or harm reduction spaces, uh, or you know, syringe exchanges, other interventions have always been open during the crisis because it was a crisis. They didn't wait until after the crisis or at a convenient time to save lives. They acted swiftly and because people's lives mattered. Uh, right now, we know that drug users' lives don't matter to these people. Isn't there also like some absurd development where so a syringe exchange like is technically illegal in in the state of Pennsylvania? but uh, uh, syringe service workers were like deemed essential workers and were like allowed to stay open. Didn't that happen like weeks ago? It's illegal anywhere outside of Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. Um, okay. But, but there are, that doesn't mean there aren't groups doing it and being sort of turned a blind eye to. No, right, but like the state or the law, it, 
is that like this stuff is illegal like giving people syringes is illegal in certain respects or certain areas whatever but at the same time like they were also deemed essential like that dichotomy is like you know like clearly doesn't square up like you have to pick a side yeah i i think i mean that's right and and it gets to the point of it's like what is what is the law? What does the law mean? What is the the purpose of the law? Uh, a lot of those assumptions have been challenged here during the COVID crisis. Uh, when it comes to needed services, uh, certain service programs clearly are, are essential services that are very important to the community. Even the communities where they are not legal, illegal, and that they work underground, they happen to be very important parts of those communities. Uh, I think that the, the fact that we see it, it, at least in Philadelphia, where the idea of arresting somebody and putting them into a box, you know, incarcerating them immediately, seems to be questioned as a as a whether that's a threat to public health. And when it comes to here, we we we've see that people are allowed to cite and then um, I guess arrest and cite and then and then allow people to leave, uh, and that doesn't seem to be threatening public safety. Uh, I think that there is a group of people that are attempting to show that it affects public safety, but it hasn't. So it's like, well, why, why should people ever be in a prison for drug possession or, or for engaging in sex work? Those, those questions are being challenged right now. And I would, I would add that it's in my experience, opioid users, opioid dependent people are not committing violent crimes. They're boosting, they're, you know, opening car doors and, you know, I mean, they're doing like the kinds of things that would qualify. That's why, you know, there hasn't been an uptick in crime because, They've already been doing that kind of stuff, and, it, and it's not going to register on a violent crime. You know, we're still keeping violent criminals, but unfortunately, the people that got arrested just prior to this are having a hard time getting out. Did you hear anything about um, a couple hundred let go, um, or, or, or was that just sort of a street anecdote I heard um, from from Philadelphia County jails? So I have heard that they are increasing the amount of people that they are. That, that they are releasing. Um, it is not happening fast enough. I think Philadelphia is one of the cities that has lagged behind others. So, uh, I mean, yes, we have been released some people, but not nearly enough. Sterling, when we met at Reform in St. Louis last year, uh, you expressed some criticisms of the supervised consumption and the harm reduction movement uh, as be kind of uh, lacking representation. Like a lot of people in this space are you know people that don't have a lot of experience with drug use or sex work or no experience at all and yet they're on these boards they're making these changes they're they're the ones that are representing everything can you talk about why that's kind of uh, ineffective i mean it, it comes down to a mix of a few things i mean there are there are no fast and hard rules about like re representation, and, and we see a lot of tokenism going on, but it is really important to have people that have experienced some of these things so they understand the urgency. You know, an issue like homelessness is a really good example of that, where people understand that they've been homeless, uh, understand the fear and the, the intricacies of, of being homeless, of, of getting your stuff stolen on a regular basis, of feeling like you need to be awake all the time, so that might lead you to more stimulant use, the, 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 the idea of you being cold, you know, this is the cold that like never goes away because you've been out there. Um, you know, those are just things that, I don't know, if you never experienced it, you're, you're not gonna think about that. You're gonna say, oh, a person can experience that, that's fine. 
you don't think of it as a horror that like you never want to get near again. And I think that it, it, we, we're seeing a lot of things that are like structural that are based in our you know, kind of racist ableist society too, where people think that if you don't meet a certain standard that you don't deserve human dignity. I think, you know, that's just one of the, the, the really, I don't know, can I say fucked up things about of our, our society? And, but that it really starts, it really goes down to having a real, a real group of people that you can go to to talk about the intricacies of the issue that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, I've written this and we've all said some version of this, that there are huge blind spots in the policymaking process if the right people are not at the table and if the right people aren't in the room to ask the right questions, then that's how we get bad laws. That's how we get stuff that, you know, is labeled, oh, that's an unintended consequence of of this. But it's like it's the most obvious consequence to someone if, you know, if they would have seen it. And I think there's just sort of like a nonchalance or sort of like distant attitude that uh, I think is part of the policymaking process and also part of, you know, government officials like they they, they take they take on that attitude. And like I just heard it, I think, today in like a, a press conference, like one of Andrew Cuomo's officials said that oh, you know, only 263 people inside Rikers, you know, died from COVID-19 so far. And like we we dodged this huge outbreak that that we thought was going to happen. Like the number should have been much higher. And it's just like just like hand waving away 263 people who died as, oh, well, they're just prisoners, like no big deal. It could have been much worse. And like that kind of stuff just like makes my stomach hurt, but it comes out of their mouths like with such nonchalance and such ease and this gets to like you know the, the whole heart of what we've been talking about is who matters right now and and again it's like not the people who were suffering and marginalized before this and if you're in state prison right now you're on you're on full-time lockdown pretty much I met a guy that came out of phoenixville the other day he said they they get out of their cell for a shower they're put back in uh, the guards, and they had three cases, like one guard, two inmates, and the whole prison is on lockdown. It's torture, uh, like solitary. It's torture. It drives people fucking insane. I mean, if I could just give a couple of on the ground, like observations that, that, that like, that are contributing to this. Um, one is that, that, that the drug user population is actually becoming the victims of crime more than than perpetrators there and in the past week i know two people that are good sources of mine that have been robbed one guy has beaten up had his ribs broken over nothing really literally nothing just stress the common stress we all feel but the stress that's amplified by not knowing where your next meal is going to come from septa is bleeding money uh, that's our transport agency so they're letting, you know, people are leaving there. They're trying to, they, they shut down two stations, two of which are adjacent to K&A, Kensington and Allegheny, which has pushed more people into that area. So there's a lot of like policy things that have, that have policy initiatives that have been enacted um, that are, that are making this population very desperate. Um, people are running out of money quick. You know, if you want a really, really cheap pair of Air Jordans, brand new, go to Kensington right now, you know, it's like that kind of situation. Yeah. So shutting down Somerset station was straight up discriminatory. Um, 
the in my opinion um what 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 is somerset station just for people not in philly so somerset station is where a lot of users congregate um a lot of people that smoke k2 congregate in that area some dealers for pills congregate in that that right in that intersection right there there's a couple of delis it's essentially like one of the um the hubs outside of kensington and allegheny I would actually say that there's more people there typically now than Kensington and Allegheny. It's just sort of a place where people hang out. So the, the choice to cut that off from the, the stations that were cut, I think, you know, it's pretty clear why the city made that judgment to me. They don't want people traveling in and out of Kensington. And it's it's clearly pretty discriminatory in my opinion. As far as, as as like violence and victimization goes, my clients are robbed weekly. I mean, just yesterday I encountered two clients who were victims of violent crime. Um, our program is currently giving away phones um, to people so that we can stay in contact with them and stay in contact about their medication so that we can call in their medication for them. And so far we've already had a handful of those phones stolen from, uh, some of our homeless and some of our housing insecure, um, individuals. So it's, 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 it's ridiculous. Yeah, which gets back to sort of the, the politics of, of who matters. And it's like the police are not serving and protecting these kinds of crimes, right? Like like uh, someone who doesn't have a home, who's, who's losing property, like that's not considered a property crime. Like these people don't hold property. Yeah, exactly. And when my clients go to fill police reports or flag down a police officer, um, the police will typically ref- like flat out refuse to fill out a police report and they they tell them that they have to go to the police station to file a police report, which is not what they would do in any other part of town. And the police station is several miles away and they expect these people to get their own foot. Yeah, but if like a sixth grader in the suburbs gets their iPod mini stolen, yeah, like this, the school shuts down. <laughs> oh, yeah, it'd be a federal case. I mean, my my car was stolen in the 24th, and I'm supposed to call 911 down here in South Philly. So the 24th district is way far away from here. Wait, your your car was straight up stolen? What the fuck? When did that happen? Dude, it took it took me four. It, it, well, my girlfriend like three or four days to track it down, and it I think it was a towing. Like we have a lot of really really shady towing companies in Philadelphia, and I think they saw it sitting in this lot for a couple of days because I had a flat. And they just gripped it up because that's where the police department says it is. And then the, but the company said they didn't have it. And it's just been, <laughs> but um, I can attest to that. And also police don't want to get near, like they don't want to touch anybody. You know what I mean? Um, Spe- speaking of that, in there, there's like a, a, I think like Lawrence County, Indiana, something like that. A sheriff like came out and straight up said that during the the pandemic that their police officers will not be carrying naloxone and will not be reversing overdoses and it's just like gets to this whole kind of mind-numbing spot where for years the police have sort of paraded their you know overdose reversal naloxone uh 
tool belt as like, you know, we can't arrest our way out of this and we're, we're helping the community when like, you know, probably a, a large portion of police to begin with never wanted to take that on and never wanted to be the, the first responders to overdoses. And like now some are just coming out and straight up saying like, yeah, we're not doing it. And it's like, good. Like you don't have to do that. Get the naloxone to people who actually know what the fuck they're doing and like you you don't need to arrive on the scene of an overdose like like there's no reason for it like it's not a homicide investigation like if, if there's naloxone and and some you know health personnel there that's it and this gets back to safe consumption sites if we have those then yeah cops don't need to show up at overdose scenes and start going through people's phones and then start creating a drug-induced homicide case. And to me, it's really interesting, like, what police, what the purpose of them, too, is. Um, I know I, I want to go back to that, the idea that, at least in Philadelphia, we had a stay-at-home order that started on the 23rd of March 2020, and and that was the same date in which our, our city government got together and decided to clear out an encampment that was under the convention center. Um, the, these two spaces that are fairly fairly well lit uh, and, and safe for people to stay at night. And they usually clear out in the morning, but our city government decided to go forward during the global pandemic and force the people to move. And many people did and they went, but you know, and, and there was one person that didn't and their response to that was to involuntarily commit him. There was an, a slight altercation, five police, op- police uniforms men were on this one gentleman and they put him in the back of a wagon and they took him away and they involuntarily committed that person, which sometimes is worse than, than arresting a person. And then after that, what we've seen is a police vehicle is just hitched at, at the end of the convention center. I don't need to say the particular streets, but they're just posted there for 24 hours a day. So when it comes to the purpose of the police, I mean, we know that they're, they're there to protect private property. I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I, <laughs> They don't protect us. They, they, when people say that or call the police and they you expect them to protect you, it, it's laughable to think that. Unless you're talking about money, you know, that they serve, that, that has to be talked about over and over again. Yeah, I discovered an encampment that just had three tents, like way off the grid down here in the yesterday. And people are just are, are moving out of where they're going to be found pretty much. And that's problematic for people. Yeah. And I, I know about or uh, I'm, a, I'm on a thread where we're talking about some encampments, but I don't even want to go to them because the police, at least in what, what I've seen, is that they know a lot. I mean, of course, we live in a surveillance state, so they, they kind of know every, everyone, like where everyone is, and they, they have quote-unquote relationships with the people. But it's like as soon as, as, soon as you go someplace, the police are going to find it, and then they're going to break it up, and then it forces the people to move to another place. I want to get back to naloxone. How is naloxone access being impacted by this crisis right now? And, and how is that contributing to overdoses? Uh, to my knowledge, Prevention Point is still giving out just as much naloxone as it was before. But other programs that may distribute naloxone in the area um, have not been doing so. I mean, I'm no longer, long, no longer with Soul Collective, but they have not stopped their outreach. Uh, Angels in Motion has a mobile syringe exchange that's just throughout the city, and they have continued to do their work. I mean, in terms of naloxone outreach, for me and a few of my compadres at Nation Organization, yeah, we were continuing to, to go to places that others won't go to as well. So we're definitely, there's a large network of people that know that the overdose crisis has not stopped, and we're going to continue to 
uh, be giving as, as much naloxone as possible. And, and I did just want, want to speak like a little bit towards that idea that some of the solutions are, are different than for, for people. I really support safe consumption spaces, supervised consumption spaces, but, but I, I do know that I know just as a, as a drug user myself, like thinking about like what I would want is I would want a house. I would want a house where I could involve my friends and we, we would be able to use together. I wouldn't want to have to go to a place where I would be observed and surveilled. I'm like a fairly paranoid person. And if I'm using, I'm extremely paranoid. So I, I don't, I don't know. That just is not my ideal situation. I would second that. I've spoken to numerous drug users that do not buy into the, the outreach needs to be an education about what these places look like. Uh, yeah, yeah. Slight note on that is that building is, as a lot of drug users already use it. I think that that was kind of a red herring, but still, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it would be interesting to figure out, like, what would the drug users of South Philly want? <laughs> they might might want their own personal space and, and, and come and go as they want, you know, or they want it in Kensington, you know, so. When thinking about this, I always go back to, to Travis Lupik's Fighting for Space book, because like, you know, that was a, a situation in Vancouver where, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily like top down where you had, you know, a bunch of uh, sort of policy people and non-users and lawyers and other people sort of bringing the idea to officials to, to make it. It was more ground up where you had, you know, a, a very organized group of users who wanted this and then they made it happen and then they went out and convinced their fellow comrades that this is something that we need and it took that kind of mobilization for the buy-in to to happen whereas in in the u.s it might be sort of reversed where you have the professional class of, of academics and, and other people who who do think it's a good idea and, you know, the, the mortality numbers sort of like merit a, a sort of intervention like this, but then there's a, a whole other component that I think, yeah, we're, it's a big question how this will play out in Philly, whether or not if you open the doors, will people use it? And I think that's where Sterling, you were maybe talking about at the top of the show about, not you know not just getting the community buy-in and the the nimbyism tamped down but also or, organizing on behalf of the people who would use it or wouldn't use it yeah and i do just want to kind of kind of break down like even some of those fissures in the community too i mean i i live down here in uh in south philly a majority black neighborhood and and i, I talk to people and i don't know it's like this is just not on the radar of a lot of people i mean it's really quite interesting to have the, some deep discussions. I think that it's a no-brainer for a lot of people. They're like, yeah, and you're going to connect people to resources? Yeah. To housing and healthcare? Yeah, of course, of course they want that. I mean, and these just happen to be people that just aren't the, aren't the people that I think anybody cares about. Some people, it's some Section 8 and some live in public housing, but it's a no-brainer to them. It, it, I think it's, it's, it seems to be this middle class that is, uh, has power over like their housing values, you know? The, 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 I mean, those are the people that are stopping this. Matt Sterling, I know you've had the experience that I have every day. In fact, there's somebody texting me repeatedly right now in desperate condition. There's a lot of our own money going out into helping people get well. It's, it's tough. 
for the people out there that are covering this community or working in this community. And, uh, you know, I appreciate the work you guys do. And I know that, that we're all doing more than just saving lives. I mean, we're, we're sort of getting people through and, 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 you know, I have a baby on the way, like I can't even afford to do this. So I don't carry money with me usually, but there's a couple people that have my number and I've been, you know, it's been hard to say no, you know. I kind of just wanted to go back to, you know, sort of, you know, what safe house would look like or should look like or, or how it would meet the needs of a drug user. And, and I agree with Sterling. I, I don't necessarily love this sort of institutional format. I think maybe as a pilot program that, yeah, it's a good idea, but, you know, thinking back to when I was, you know, shooting heroin, I would have wanted something more like what they have in Kensington right now, which is the public bathrooms where maybe there's some sort of attendant who's Narcan trained or, you know, able to respond to things in a proper manner. Um, but having those, you know, throughout the entirety of the city, you know, drug use isn't isolated to one or another part of the city. It's, it's everywhere throughout the city. And for me, you know, shooting heroin was just a, a casual part of my day. It's something that I needed to do to get to the next thing. So, you know, that that is sort of more like a more casual and more widespread implementation is something that I personally would like to see because this single isolated institutional building sounds like a great idea and the connectivity to services sounds like a great idea. I like that, but we need something that's more accessible, something that people are actually going to going to use. Yeah, and thinking of, thinking about that, just like if you know, just the way that people use drugs, whether it's cocaine or heroin or MDMA, like they're not really you know using it in like a stall with a nurse watching them. You know, like like that's pretty foreign concept to people, and you know, drug use. Uh, you know, maybe maybe that that analogy doesn't really work out because there's just a pretty strict, pragmatic approach to the the opioid situation, which is you know, monitor for the first you know twenty minutes or so to make sure there's there's no you know overdose, and then you know, sort of like you're saying, Mac, like go about your day and and go to the next thing. If you know, going to a site like going across town and then waiting in line and like doing this whole rigmarole yeah that might not really you know fold into someone's everyday life and they may not use it that way so like all these little nuances of daily life you know might not be at the forefront of you know the consumption or, or formation of something like you know, a supervised consumption site in america so yeah you know i think thinking about all those things gets back to what we were saying before why it's so important to have the right people at the table. Yeah, yeah, I, I know I mean, Chris made a great point about, about the money that people put out for, for others. Last year, the general assistance, like, like $200 a month was cut in, in, Phil, in Pennsylvania. And I, I know I was, uh, as a person that, I, I was on general assistance uh, and I, I was living with my aunt at one time and it was this thing that like really sustained me as well as food stamps. So I just remember that experience of it. Of it and I just, I just know that that money it just is transferred to the people that are in the community. It's the people that are buying food for 
for people that they know or getting people transit to somebody, uh, you know, getting a lift when you need to get somewhere quickly to a doctor's appointment. You know, it's, it's all this stuff where there's costs that, that are here that, that still exist, even if the government doesn't do anything about it. You know, it makes, and people are often, and I get accused of being angry about things, but, you know, when I know that there is money available that could be used for for people like in, being in a hotel. And I know that like I have friends of mine that are taking their own money, their own salaries and, and paying for hotels for people and the government's not doing anything about it because they don't think that they should. Like that makes me really fucking angry. It makes you really fucking angry that, that, that the state whose job is to do this thing or, or, you know, or maybe public, the Philadelphia Housing Authority, housing authorities across the country or, or the Office of Homeless Services, when it's in their mission to do it, it takes like a small woman who just like gives a shit about people to like, house people, people that are immunocompromised, people with children, they, they, that cost still exists in this world. And there are going to be people that take it on because they care. I, I, just, I just want to put that out. Chris made a, just an excellent point about the amount of people that, mm-hmm. uh, that we're connected to and the amount of people that we're going to continue to help. Like, uh, quote, I, don't, I don't even know if it's helping. I, hate, I really dislike that word, but like, we're going to like, use our resources. And when we're talking about resources, we're not talking about this austerity culture where we're trying to like save enough money. No, people are, we're living beings and we actually need food and water and, and that costs money. And that means the money needs to be transferred to those people so they can actually live. I mean, I know what's happening because these are people that are sick and if somebody's sick, they've got me. I mean, and I got to lay down boundaries that are like, okay, you got to stop with the crack. You don't need the crack. Use the money to get your dope. You know what I mean? Like, so, well, I, you know, I appreciate that you know, you brought up the services issue. This is like real life, you know, and it's, and that's their number one priority when you wake up sick in the morning and it's three o'clock and you still haven't gotten well, you know? Yeah. And it's really hard. I have such, such a hard time with boundaries too. Well, no, I, you didn't say you did, but I have a hard time with boundaries. Oh, I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to put on a little bit of uh, a plug for if you're seeing people's Venmos and cash apps that need to be filled up, please share those too. Because there's a nonprofit industrial complex that uses the, the, these stories and people's trauma as, as, as gold, right? As just like people use urine oh. and blood as gold. I, I'm for, I want to know who that person is and I want to give that to their cash app directly. So the, you got to mix that up. Sure. I just, I just want to put that in there. Thanks. All right. Uh, so Sterling Johnson and Matt Shepik, thanks for being on the program. Yeah, you can promote uh, my Instagram. That's uh, S-H-E-P-P-E-C-K-S-E-E-S. It's Shepik C's. And then um, follow the uh, Philadelphia Tenants Union page on Facebook. And Sterling, you can be found at LB underscore Sterling on Twitter. Yes, pound Sterling. Thanks for being on the program, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for all the work you're doing. Thanks for giving us your time. And hopefully we have you back on and follow up about all of this soon. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast. We're also on other social medias like Facebook and YouTube. Today's episode is dedicated to Nancy Kieran at Clean Slate Centers in Tuxbury, Massachusetts. She's one of our biggest Patreon supporters, and we couldn't do this without people like her. Thank you, Nancy. Your contributions help keep this show free from corporate influence. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Marath, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. Our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music is by Soft and Furious. And I am your co-producer, Garrett. Give us a follow where you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, you name it. And make sure you're staying safe. Take care, guys.